Father, we would come before your throne as your servants, acknowledging your sovereignty, your lordship, as king of the universe, as lord of our lives. And we thank you that you are a great benevolent sovereign, that your love surpasses that of any human being, and that your desire for us is only for our good. And we're so grateful that you understand us even better than we understand ourselves. And you've given to us the Word of God to speak to us and to teach us what it means to know you and what it means to receive the blessing of God in our lives and to be a blessing to one another. Father, we thank you for the body of Christ meeting here this morning in the various uh, Sunday school classes and in the service which is happening simultaneously. We pray that you'll be present with each one in every venue this morning. Glorify yourself. Exalt your word in our hearts. Teach us, Lord, to be not hearers only, but doers of the word of God. We ask that you will touch our lives in a special way today and that your voice will echo in our hearts and that truth will be fixed there and will be part of the warp and woof of our very being as we thank you for your promises and for your presence. In Christ's name, amen. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. I'd like to read that verse to begin with. Last week at the end of class, we began to look at that uh, particular verse. Exodus 3.1 Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Moses, as you remember, spent the first 40 years of his life becoming a prince in an earthly kingdom. It took 40 years of desert experience now to prepare Moses for a personal encounter with the living God. This is a very, very crucial and critical event in Scripture and, of course, obviously, in the life of the man Moses himself. If you study as we intend to do over the next few months, I'll put it at that, the life of Moses, you will discover that there is no more important event, no more critical event than this encounter between God and Moses in the wilderness with no one as witness save the angels of heaven. He would come away from this experience a totally different man. Not the man he had been for 40 years in Egypt and not the man he had been in the wilderness herding sheep either, but a different man. And of course, that's really what God's about. God's about making us different people, making us different from who we are now and who we were born to be. Because, as you've heard so many times, and it, I suppose it can't be said enough because we have so much tendency to, to focus on the doing that we forget the most critical part is the being. Being what God wants us to be is far more important than doing any particular thing. Because out of the being comes the doing. If we don't be, we can't do. 
Every single one of us in this room needs a personal encounter with God Almighty. Not a generic encounter, not an encounter where just one of the masses, not the way by which so many have been, quote, converted to Christianity in merry parts of the world where the priest stands on a hill above the town, holds up a cross, and, and claims the whole village for God, but where we individually have stood alone before God. That encounter may not be dramatic as Moses was here in, in this burning bush out in the desert. It may not be like Paul's experience on the Damascus Road where he was knocked off his donkey and witnessed a light shining in his eyes that was brighter than the noonday sun. Our experience may not be like that. But as you read through Scripture, you'll discover that as you look at the lives of so many men and women in Scripture, Joshua, Luke, David, whoever you might name, they didn't have those experiences either. They didn't meet God with a blinding light, and they didn't meet God with a burning bush. But they did have a personal encounter with the living God. And that personal encounter for them was as meaningful as was Moses' experience to him as was Paul's experience to him. Every single Christian, every person who is truly a Christian, has had to have that moment when he or she stands humbly and alone before God in repentance and receiving new life. Now that event may not be very dramatic. Most of us can probably, if, if that's happened in our lives, we can remember when it happened. There are those who, who don't remember the event uh, specifically, but there was that moment. It had to happen if we're truly born again. But later through life, if we're truly obedient Christians, we will have other encounters with God. We'll have other moments where we meet God and He will redirect our lives or reaffirm whatever it is that needs to happen. Those encounters are important for us. I know that all of us who are parents or grandparents or just simply friends of others have come to realize that we can teach, we can preach, we can cajole, we, we can coerce, but none of that will bring another person into a right relationship with God. That person can only come into that relationship with a personal commitment to God himself, herself where that moment comes where that person recognizes that his, his or her accountability between himself, herself, and God is there, where the commitment is personal. I know for those of us who have parents, we've always, it's always been a great delight when that moment finally came, when, when the child is living for God because of his or her own accountability and relationship with God and not simply because we've drugged the child to church and tried to convince the child to do this or that or the other thing. And we all have to come to that place. There's no way we can be generic Christians. Well, I go to a good church and, and I sit and listen to a good sermon and therefore I'm a good Christian. It doesn't work that way. We have to stand personally before God and we have to have that daily accountability to him that comes from that personal encounter. Again, it doesn't necessarily become a burning bush experience in, in the physical manifestation as Moses relates in Exodus.
But it has to be a personal encounter where our minds and our hearts are focused on the reality of who God is and we hear him. Not necessarily audibly as Moses did here. Probably not audibly, but in our hearts. It's very, very important because we can become convinced that God is something that he is not. So many churches today simply teach a God who is a God of mercy and love and he is that. And we don't want to diminish that in any way, but he is also a consuming fire. Our God demands accountability. Scripture teaches us that he hates even the appearance of evil. And of course, we cannot be of any eternal value to ourselves or to anyone else until we arrive at that place of understanding the total nature of God. Not, Not fully, we never will in this life, but we have to have the balance between mercy and justice, between love and purity, and knowing that all of this is part of being a true believer and walking by faith with him. Moses was a prince, but he had been greatly humbled by 40 years of fellowshipping with sheep in the wilderness. And yet, in spite of that 40 years of humbling, That man was not a changed man until he had this one-on-one encounter with the living God there at the base of Mount Horeb. Those of you who are familiar with the Protestant Reformation know that one of the great themes of the Protestant Reformation that was particularly loudly preached by Martin Luther was the priesthood of the believer. The church at that time had come to the place where Everyone felt that, well, it was between them and the priest, and it was the priest's job that didn't carry everything on up to God. God was, the, the priest was the go-between. I don't have any personal responsibility to God. It's my priest's job. I go and have my confession to him, and he's the one that got to go to God and get forgiveness for me. And that's not the way it is. Uh, Peter tells us that we are a holy nation, that we are a nation of priests individually before God. Priesthood of the individual believer. We stand before God for ourselves. We pray to God for our own needs. We can intercede for one another, but not as a priest was conceived to do that back in the medieval world. We must personally stand before the living God. Now, Moses apparently worked for his father-in-law there in the wilderness, uh, yeah, Moses, in the wilderness as Jacob had done for his. But there's a difference. You remember after Jacob had worked for his father-in-law for 20 years, he had his own herd and he broke away and he moved off to a different place and he became self-sustaining. But there's no evidence that Moses did this. Moses, as far as we know, herded Jethro's sheep for the full 40 years of his wilderness experience. Moses had nowhere else to go. He couldn't flee back to his father in Canaan as Jacob did. He had nowhere to go. He definitely wasn't going to go back to Egypt, at least at that time. He probably felt, now if you put yourself in Moses' sandals, you you would probably think, as I think Moses thought. I'm going to spend the rest of my living years pushing these sheep through the desert. 
going home once in a while and, and fellowshipping with my family and watching my boys grow up and, and, and uh, ministering or, you know, fellowshipping with the family, but spending most of my time alone out here with the sheep until I die. Probably what he thought. Certainly Moses had no direct premonition that, you know, God had this grand and glorious program yet for Moses. Although Moses was 80 years old, he was still strong and healthy, but he didn't know he'd live another 40 years, certainly. I think Moses certainly had the memory of the oppression of, the oppression of his people there in Egypt, and I think that memory haunted him. But I think also, at the same time, he felt powerless to do anything about it. After all, his initial attempt, which was just a kind of a gut reaction, led to his being chased out of the land as, as a criminal. So what could he do to liberate his people? You know, in some ways, I think we all have to come to that place of acknowledging our own powerlessness. If we don't acknowledge that we are powerless to do anything to liberate people from the kingdom of darkness, then God can't work in us. Because if we think we can do it, then God isn't going to work. Because God is the one who works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. And anyone brought into the kingdom is not brought in because we sang a beautiful song, or because we preached a wonderful sermon, or because our lives are so exemplary before those around us, but because God touched their hearts and because the Spirit of God brought them into the kingdom. Now, we may be a tool that God will use as a step along the way, but it's God's work. And so I think Moses felt pretty powerless there in the desert. Who am I but a shepherd? And what's a shepherd? Just about the very bottom of the socioeconomic scale of that day, or of any day for that matter. So who am I to think that there's any way I can deliver my people? If I couldn't do it as a prince, I sure am not going to be able to do it as a shepherd. Verse 2, Exodus 3. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire in the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their suffering so I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land, from that land, to a land, to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. And now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression 
with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. God is a God of mercy and a God of justice. And as we noted last week, the hour will come when he will avenge his people. But it may take 400 years, figuratively speaking, in this case, literally speaking, before God does what we wish he would do today. You know, We're a whole lot like James and John, the sons of thunder. Lord, fry them. You know, they, they, they have turned us away. Cook them. And, and that's a natural reaction that we have. You know, that, but that's part of what God needs to purify out of us. To replace our, our sense of what ought to be righteousness and, and purity with, with God's sense, which is tempered with mercy, love. Moses was still pasturing sheep out in the wilderness, pushing the sheep, we're told, through the west side of the land of Midian. I, I don't think you could say the land of Midian was, was a land with distinct boundaries, you know, with border guards and, and you know, a central government. It was just the land in which the tribes of Midian moved around. And, and it, wasn't a, a, it wouldn't have been a member of the United Nations if there had been one that day. It's just a land in which the Midianites were the dominant people, but certainly other Bedouin and, and tribal peoples lived in the area too. He was near Mount Horeb. This is the first scriptural mention of that mountain. It's not mentioned at all in the book of Genesis. This mountain is also known to us as Mount Sinai. Horeb means waste or desolation, and that is a very appropriate name for that area. It's a great barren rock. For those of you who are, who are accustomed to Northern California and Oregon and Washington and the, and the mighty peaks that rise up, covered with trees up to the tree line and then covered with great glaciers on the top, you, you look at the mountain called Horeb and you think, yuck. <laughs> it's just a big hunk of red granite sticking up in the air 7,500 feet. And it's basically devoid of vegetation. Just a big rock standing up in the Sinai Desert. Hundreds of miles from anything significant. I mean, it was a long walk to any center of civilization, the nearest center being Egypt, from this mountain. Today, this mountain is called Jebel Musa, meaning the mountain of Moses. The Arabs, the Mohammedans, believe this is the mountain. Tradition holds this to be the mountain. And even though there have been archaeologists out dinking around in the Sinai, trying to find out if there's evidence for other places, and some have said, oh no, this is the mountain, that's the mountain. For thousands of years, this has been the traditional site. In verse 1 of this passage, we read that this was called the mountain of God. We have to recognize that that is Moses speaking in retrospect. As he was out there pushing the sheep before he encountered the burning bush, that was not the mountain of God. It was just one of the mountains out there in the desert. It doesn't become the mountain of God until after the Ten Commandments and Moses spends 40 days and 40 nights up on the mountain. Then it becomes the mountain of God. But, of course, he's writing Exodus after all that's happened. 
And so in retrospect, he says, this is the mountain of God. I think in, at the time Moses is encountering the burning bush, that mountain means no more to him than any other mountain or to anybody else. It's not the mountain of God. It's just one of many mountains, probably not more revered than any other mountain in the Sinai at that time. In the second verse, we read that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. This is, again, as we have noted before, another statement of a theophany, of a manifestation of God himself in angelic form, as he so often appeared to Abraham, Jacob, and others in Genesis, and will yet appear in times later to Joshua, to Gideon, and, and to other individuals. God becomes visible to Moses in the flame. The word for bush used here is uh, rather generic. It's not specific. Therefore, we're not able to determine what kind of bush it was. There are, there are times when, a, say, a tree is mentioned and a certain word is used so that we know that it's a, a tamarisk or it's an oak tree or it's a palm tree. But this is just kind of the word bush, like we would use the word bush today. And I say, there's a bush in my yard. I mean, that could mean any one of a hundred different kinds or more of plant. So we don't know what it was, but many commentators believe that it was probably one of the many xerophytic thorn bushes that existed in that part of the world and still exist in that part of the world even today. So the important, the important point is the bush was not unusual in itself. It was just a common, ordinary desert bush. I mean, Moses had passed those bushes by the thousands. And he had taken no particular note of them. But this bush will be unusual because of the presence of the flame and the fact that the bush doesn't burn up. It's not consumed by the flame. In, in the third verse, we read that Moses, it says, Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. To whom was Moses talking? <laughs> to himself. <laughs> if you're out in the desert, you don't have anybody else to talk to either. Well, you could talk to the sheep, and I'm sure he talked to the sheep quite a bit. But it's kind of a one-way conversation. Unless, of course, you imply different meanings to the bad and the bleeding of the sheep. <laughs> I guess animals do communicate in some way. And, and recent issue of the U.S. News talks about how animals supposedly communicate with one another. And they're discovering many interesting things, of course, which are all chalked up to evolution. But uh, I'm sure Moses uh, had no particular, you know, conversation with the sheep that had any meaning. So Moses was talking to himself. I must turn aside now and look at this wondrous sight. And so he had to turn off course. The implication here is not that the bush was dead set in, in front of him and that he was moving towards it, but it was burning over here. He probably first caught it with his peripheral vision. He looks over here and he had to move off his course over to see the bush. Stop doing what he was doing and focus his attention on the flame. This, for many of us, is the big problem we have with God. God doesn't always see the important thing that we're doing. 
and just kind of guide us in the midst of the important thing. He says, come over here and look at this flame. Don't you know, Lord, that what I'm doing is important? I've got no time to go over here and look at this flame. That's out of the way. It's off the course. It's not the way I'm headed. No, so often we say, Lord, I'm going to do this. Now please bless me. And say, instead of saying, oh God, where do you want me to go that I might have your blessing? God requires us often to stop doing what we think is so blessed important and come aside and discover what really is important. Now, unfortunately for some of us, it's not just a burning bush. It's flat out on our back for six months because of something that's happened in our lives. Sometimes that's all God can do to get us to stop and listen. And we really have to say to God, thank you. <laughs> Even though in the midst of it, it may not be fun at all. But God has a purpose in it. Because we often become so busy in doing what we're doing, which is so all-fired important in our opinion, that we miss what really is important. We want to make our mark in the world. We want everybody to think, whoa, that person made this great contribution and not realize that that contribution may, ha may just go up as wood, hay, and stubble because God has another direction for us to be going. Moses said that the sight was great. How was it great? It was great in that it was unprecedented in his experience. He had never seen such a sight before. We would say, awesome. <laughs> and in that sense, we would be using the word correctly. It is awesome. Most of what we say is awesome isn't awesome at all. You know, that awesome hairdo this person has. Not awesome. It probably isn't even good. <laughs> what is awesome is what God does. And this was truly awesome to him. Now, it was ordinary. It was a bush like all bushes he saw in the desert, or many bushes. And of course, he had seen fires many times, and certainly he had seen bushes on fire before. In fact, he had probably gathered dried bushes to make a fire in the cold evenings in the desert. But this sight was extraordinary for two reasons. First of all, there was no apparent cause for the flame. Nobody had, was out there lighting the bush on fire. There, was no, there were no clouds in the sky and no thunder and no lightning had struck to, to set the bush on fire. Now some commentators, particularly liberal commentators, who just don't like the idea of anything extraordinary, non-natural occurring, will try to teach, tell us that, oh, well, you know, there may have been a, some kind of a piece of quartz out there that focused the rays of the sun at just the right time and set the bush on fire. You know, it's, it's, it's this whole idea of the fact that uh, God needs to use some natural thing to, to create what appears to be supernatural in Scripture. There were no people. There was no thunderstorm. How could this bush be burning? And then beyond that, how come, as this bush is burning so furiously, it is not consumed? Now, I have never seen this happen before in my life. Roar, roar, burn, burn, you know, heat emanating off, flames rising into the sky, and this bush is unchanged. Now, of course, Hollywood can do it with natural gas <laughs> or some other such thing, but this isn't Hollywood. 
This is not Charlton Heston. This is really Moses. I, I think it's really important here as we study this event that we note that God does not approach Moses in some kind of an esoteric manner. There was no secret truth, no exotic message, no cryptic statement which Moses had to sit down and try to decode. God used a common feature in Moses' environment, a bush. He used another common phenomenon, a fire, to meet him with a straightforward, clear message. I am God, and this is what I want you to do. In plain Egyptian or Midianite or whatever he spoke, Hebrew. The Jews will tell you, of course, God speaks Hebrew because that's the language of heaven. And if you have trouble with it, you better learn it because we're all going to have to speak it up there. <laughs> well, be that as it may, the message was clear. And it's important for us to note that's how God meets every one of us. He doesn't meet us in some kind of a cryptic manner. God meets us straightforward. The Word of God is the primary way by which He meets all of us. This is how He meets us and this is how He teaches us, through His Word. And what does His Word teach us? It first teaches us who He is. It teaches us, in addition to, who, to whom He is, what He has done for us and what He expects of us. Really, what more do we need to know? Who He is, who we are, what He has done, and what He expects us to do and be. That's basically it. Again, that was one of the great cries of the Reformation. The Scripture only is the means by which we learn how to live the life of faith. How to live this life we gain from Scripture and from Scripture only. There was no hidden meaning as the Gnostics want us to believe or historically have wanted people to believe. There were no secret rites or occultic knowledge that the pagans and the cults and secret orders believe. There was simply, thus saith the Lord. God you remember, as we studied this back in the early part of our study of Genesis, God appeared to Abraham as a flaming torch. Now God appears to Moses in a flaming bush. In both cases, we have a vision of a reality of the character of God. I'd like for us, if we could, to turn to the 12th chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12 beginning at verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape, when they refused him who warned them on earth, that is Moses, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns us from heaven, that is Christ. And his voice shook the earth then at Mount Sinai, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Moses is being shaken down here, by the way. 
Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I really think it's important for us to, as I mentioned at the beginning, that we have a balanced understanding of God. We have so much this, this idea, uh, and so many of our choruses go along as if Jesus is our buddy. And we're just kind of hanging our arm around his shoulder and we're just having a good chit-chat as we walk down the road to Emmaus or whatever. And we fail to recognize that our God is a consuming fire. As we're told in one of Paul's writings, he dwells in unapproachable light. We recognize that Jesus, in one little slight moment in Gethsemane, as recorded in the book of John, let just the teeniest, teeniest little ray of divine glory shine forth. When, they said, when he said, who are you looking for? And they said, we're looking for Jesus. And he says, I am he. Whack. Really slain in the spirit. <laughs> Not this hocus pocus that happens so much. But true manifestation of the glory of God as they all fell before the power of that was just minutely displayed at that moment. The flame that was witnessed by Abraham and the flame that is witnessed by Moses speaks of God's purity and of God's holiness. We definitely have got to come to a place of incorporating the true image of God where we witness him as a consuming fire and yet a God of mercy and love and compassion. We, we don't want the, the image that drove Martin Luther, and that was the image that God was a God of wrath, and there was nothing I could do to ever satisfy that wrath. But again, we don't want this ooshy-gooshy version of Jesus where he's nothing but a sweet little baby forever and ever. But where we see him Maybe not exactly as Michelangelo paints him on the rear wall of the Sistine Chapel as, as, as the angry returning judge. But we do recognize that he is a God of purity and holiness. He will not tolerate even the touch of sin and evil. Jesus said to Peter, you're clean but not all. Let me wash your feet, Peter. And just like Probably we would have responded. We, uh, Peter says, oh, well, not just my, my feet, my everything. You know, he, he just kind of overreacts in so many circumstances. And it's all there for us so we can look, oh, Peter, I see myself in you, Peter. And, and yet Jesus in tenderness deals with Peter, knowing that Peter will soon, I don't even know the man. We might say, how could he do that? Well, just look at the mirror. And how many times has that happened in our lives? So we need to seek a balance. Nothing evil can stand in his presence. He is a purifying fire. Last week, we had a message from the pulpit on power. The power of the Holy Spirit. But before that power can come, as Erwin Lutzer was saying this morning in his message, there must be purification. Before power comes purity. 
The church must be purified before it will have power. And that's what we don't want. We want to have power and still live the way we feel like it in the world and in the world's way. We don't want to be too odd in this world. But if we really want the power of God, there's got to be purification first. We've got to quit making excuses about, well, you know, it's your fault that you stumble at what I do. You need to clean up your act. It's your problem. Rather than seeing as Paul said, hey, if what I do causes my brother to stumble, I won't do it anymore, even though it's perfectly okay for me to do it. I'm not hurting myself. But if it hurts him, even if it's right for me, I won't do it. Problem with that, because it violates our rights as Christians, as Americans. It doesn't fit with our definition of Christian liberty, but it fits perfectly with Jesus' servanthood. And that's one of the hardest things to learn. And that's what Moses is learning out here in the desert, how to be a servant. He's not going to be able to go and wag his finger in the nose of Pharaoh without becoming empowered by God. Because Pharaoh is the mightiest ruler of the day. He can snuff him out like a bug. But Moses doesn't go to Pharaoh, ah, I got the power of God in me. I'm going to teach that old Pharaoh. No, he goes as a humble servant of the living God. Because he has been purified in the flame. Moses' interest here is more than idle curiosity. He says, oh, that's an interesting thing over there. I think I'll go take a look. I haven't got anything else to do. Bored with these old sheep anyway. He perceived something unusual. That's very true. And certainly the spectacle was drawing him. But I believe there was something undeniable in his soul which was drawing him over there. And that was the Holy Spirit of the living God. In James 4 we read, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to us. We, we have to be careful that we're not so Calvinistic in our relationship with God that we don't think there's anything we can do at all to benefit our relationship with God. Now, it's true. There is no work we can do to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's done by God's grace alone. But once we know him, there are things we can do to draw near to God. And he will respond to that effort. And the scripture teaches he will draw near to us. And you know, if we're not near to God, we don't see the presence of God. If we're not near to God, we don't see the burning bushes which really are all around us in this person, in this incident, in this crisis, in this problem, in this joy. There are burning bushes that may be meant for us individually. And often we don't see them. It's just a pain. Just another problem along the way. I'll be glad when I get over that one. Rather than seeing it as a way by which God is speaking to us. Moses approached the bush and as he did so, God spoke. The first words he spoke were to affirm to Moses, this is a personal encounter. This is not just a generic thing out here for anybody to see. This is specifically for you, Moses. He knew that because as we read in the fourth verse, 
When the Lord saw him turn aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Hey, shepherd! No. He said, Moses! Moses! I know your name. I know who you are. Moses, come here! That, you know, that's got to be kind of surprising. You're out there and you haven't seen a person for days and, you know, the sheep don't know your name. They may know your voice, but, but from this flame comes your name. And I don't think it was, like back masking or something. But it was Moses, clear, plain, was his name. He heard it with his ears and he heard it in his heart, too. He knew, God knew who he was. And you know, God's call to us is direct and personal. It's not just a generic call. Well, anybody out there who happens to be listening, God speaks to you and he speaks to me individually. He says, Judy or Gary or Jim or whoever. He talks to us directly and personally. And what is important about this is, God wasn't fooled by Moses. It wasn't as if God was out there with a bush. He was looking for the nearest shepherd to come by. And he was just hoping he might get a good shepherd. And, you know, you, you remember the phrase, uh, the statement in James, it tells us that Elijah was a man as you and I are. And yet, because of his prayer, God held off the rain for three and a half years, and as a result of his prayer, God sent a deluge. We might say, whoa, you know, Jesus commanded the winds to be still and the sea to be calm, but woe unto me, I'm not going to tell it what to do. Elijah was a man as we are. Moses was a man as we are. I mean, we have tended to put Moses up on some kind of a pedestal and fail to recognize he was a person really just as we are. And when God called Moses, he knew he was weak. He knew what his faults were. He knew what his sin had been. And he knew what he would be. And that's what's really important for you and for me. Because sometimes when we fail, we can say, oh, if God had only known what a jerk I am, he never would have saved me. Oh, yes, he would. God's not, not God knows the future from the present. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. God knows all things. And when from eternity past, God chose you to be a child of his kingdom, he knew what kind of a person you, he's not surprised. Oh, no. I called this guy, and look what he's doing. When God saved us, he knew what we would do and what we would be, and he called us anyway. You know, we, we need to recognize that there is not a person who's ever walked this planet, save Jesus Christ himself, who's any more worthy of God's call than you and I are. No one. Because the least of sin puts us in opposition to God. And there's no one who has not sinned. Not even the mother of Jesus. Which, of course, certain denominations would deny. But she was fully human. And capable of sin, and certainly a sinner, as all the rest of us are. God never calls a wrong number. He never makes a mistake. I, I think Moses was startled. He's going over to look at this bush. He's a little bit suspicious. What was going through his mind? We don't know, but as he approached the bush and he heard his name, 
That has got to be a startling thing. You're walking out there and there's no one else around and suddenly, I don't think it, I really don't think it was a still small voice. God speaks in the still small voice as he did to Elijah on, on, on this mountain much later. I think it was Moses. <laughs> you, know. you know, have you ever seen something really strange and you're starting to come up on it and you're wondering what this really is and sudden, suddenly something else happens? You just about leap right out of your clothing. And I think Moses was, was startled. And I don't know how long it took him to respond. You know, it just, you know, it, it says here, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. But, you know, it's easy to pin that out, but I think it's kind of like, you know, he looks around and thinks about it for a while and finally says, here I am. He's been wandering around for weeks with nothing but sheep in the desert. And to hear his name called out clearly and with authority. Remember, God always speaks with authority. Remember what they said about Jesus? It's not like the other teachers. He speaks with authority. It was not tentative. And I personally believe that's how the word of God needs to be proclaimed from the pulpits of the churches of Jesus Christ. Not tentatively, but with authority. Because it is the authoritative word of God, if we are rightly dividing it. And that must be our prayer. Moses, I think, was nonplussed. But I think there was a sense of God's presence. I would suspect that having been out there wandering through the desert for, for lo these many weeks, that other things that might impinge upon his senses, upon his emotions, upon his mind, were, were just not there. I think there would be a purifying thing to some extent. That is, purifying away of all the hubbub of, of civilized life to, to be out there with nothing but the sheep. To know this is your responsibility, and you don't have any responsibility anywhere else except to your wife and, and to, your, to your sons, but they know what you're doing and they're all for it. So there, there aren't these other things clamoring. And so I think it was more sensitive to God's presence. I think sometimes we don't sense God's presence because our minds are so filled with the busyness of our lives. Oh, if I don't get home by one, my roast will burn. You know, or, or, or I have, next week we're going on vacation and I got to remember to take this and this and this. And so many things are coming in on our minds we don't even know God's there. He's got to hit us with a two-by-four before we really get the point. But, but Moses had none of that. He was doing what he was supposed to do. There was no one else around. It was probably dead quiet, except maybe a little wind blowing through the bush. So he could sense that God was there. He doesn't run. He doesn't start saying, well, who are you? I want to know who you are. <laughs> he just says, here am I. <laughs> he knew who this was. No, he doesn't know God like you can and I can know about God because he didn't have this book to study about God. But he knew that this was the one he had heard about from his parents and he had been probably communing with for lo these many weeks in the desert. However, appropriately or inappropriately, he was communing with God. Certainly he didn't know how to pray in Jesus' name because Jesus hadn't yet been born. 
He may not have known how to say, Dear Lord, and Amen. But, but in his heart, probably openly, he was talking with God, I believe, out there in the desert while herding the sheep. And yet, in spite of all of that, there's no record anywhere of his ever having had an encounter with God where God appeared to him visibly or spoke to him audibly before this moment. So he was communing by faith. And that is so critical that we understand that. Hebrews 11 tells us that by faith, Moses left Egypt. And we say, no, no. He left Egypt because he was a wanted man and he fled to get out of there because he didn't want to die in Egypt. He had rashly murdered a man, which is, even though the Ten Commandments hadn't, ha hadn't been given yet, he knew <coughs> from the teaching that had come down, even from the days of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, that taking of, of another one's life is not of God, unless God commands it to, be, to happen. And yet it says, by faith he left Egypt. Because down in the core of his soul was this kernel of faith. How big does it have to be to be important? Jesus said, as big as a grain of mustard seed, which as you've been often told is a very, very, I've never raised mustard, but I'm told that a mustard seed is a very, very tiny thing. So it didn't have to be very big for God to say, by faith Moses left Egypt, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Well, there's a very, very, I think, important point that needs to be made here, and I don't have time to make it. So I will make it next Sunday as we begin the lesson, and, and we're going to refer to the 20th chapter of John in the process, uh, because we today experience a great division within the church. I don't mean our church, but I'm talking about the church in general in America. And, and there are those who feel that God has got to demonstrate himself in mighty one signs and wonders for us to really have faith in him. And there are others who, who say, nope, signs and wonders were gone. They were only for the first century, and they're not for this century, and they haven't been for any century after the first century. You've got these two opposite poles here within the church. And how does that impinge upon what we see here? And what does John chapter 20 tell us about this whole thing? We'll look at that at the beginning of class next week.